Hello and welcome to episode 53 of ERRX. Back in episode 24, we had our first expert talk series when we discussed methemoglobinemia. And now this week, we're very grateful to have Dr. Casey Lee back for another discussion, this time on hydrofluoric acid toxicity. For those Happy of you, to be here. <laughs> thanks for being here. For those of you who don't remember Casey, she's a graduate of the University of Florida and she completed her PGY1 pharmacy residency training in Boston and then completed her PGY2 fellowship in clinical toxicology and emergency medicine in Jacksonville, Florida. And she is now a full-time emergency department pharmacist in Orlando. So Casey, it's great to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Great. All right, well, we'll just start off with a couple questions about hydrofluoric acid and its, and its toxicity. I hope these questions won't be too basic. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Let's get as complex as we can. <laughs> So, um, you know, we at ERRX and, and Casey, her and I were just talking about how we want to talk more about the obscure things, you know, in the toxicology realm and in the pharmacology realm. Um, and I think hydrofluoric acid definitely fits that mold. So Casey, can you tell us more about hydrofluoric acid, where it comes from, and then how do patients get exposed to it? Yeah. So hydrofluoric acid, it can be used in a pretty wide variety of scenarios, so you'll probably hear it discussed in glass etching that includes in microchips as well. Uh, it's commonly found in many rust removal products or other cleaning uh, solutions for things like porcelain. Uh, usually when we're reviewing toxicity, we talk about hydrofluoric acid specifically just because it's probably the most common substance we encounter. But really, I think we can broaden the discussion. Uh, it's relevant to any fluoride containing or fluoride releasing substance. So Things like sodium fluoride, which was formerly used as an insecticide or rodenticide, or um, ammonium bifluoride, which is an alloy production and also in glass etching. Um, there are other fluorosilicate compounds. There are fluoride salts and things like toothpaste uh, and drinking water. And really any of those compounds when they're ingested would be converted to hydrofluoric acid in vivo. But um, really, we can kind of group them all into the same type of toxic scenario. Um, there's also those case reports that look at suicide attempts involving hydrofluoric acid and some mass exposures related to hydrogen fluoride gas. Uh, but usually you'd probably see this as an unintentional hobby-related exposure or unintentional occupational exposure. And as you can imagine, since uh, that's the most common scenario, the most common site of injury or exposure would be a dermal exposure probably to the hands. Um, but also you can certainly see those ophthalmic oral inhalational toxicities as well. Sure. And how does it cause toxicity once patients get exposed to it? So this is where it gets um, pretty unique among the acids. So of course, uh, it's hydrofluoric acid, but it's a pretty weak acid actually. Um, but despite being a weak acid, it can cause extremely severe local and systemic toxicity. As you know, um, fluorine being the most electronegative element in the periodic table, <laughs> can oh, actually really snag those um, some of those cations that um, and that causes a lot of the toxicity. So hydrofluoric acid itself has a very high permeability, so it can really get into the tissue before it starts to dissociate into those hydrogen ions and fluoride um, ions. And those fluoride ions are very electronegative. They'll just bind up uh, your stores of calcium and magnesium, um, which can lead to cellular dysfunction lead to cellular death. And you can also see some intracellular calcium accumulation um, because of alterations in the sodium potassium ATPase pump, 
alterations in sodium calcium exchange. And then um, you see the next component of the toxicity, which is potassium efflux uh, because of that effect. So we have uh, depletion in calcium magnesium. We have an increase in our extracellular potassium. And uh, related to these things, we see those that neuropathic pain from the alterations in calcium homeostasis. We see vasospasm um, leading to ischemia. And then um, remarkable, some very remarkable fall in our calcium and our magnesium levels as it binds those up. And certainly in, in some forms of hydrofluoric acid, like the anhydrous form, you can also see those very classical caustic burns. But um, most commonly, you won't see quite that same um, very visible picture of a chemical burn. Sure. And this is one of those things that just seems like such a misnomer, you know, when you hear for example, hydrofluoric right. acid, in my mind, yeah. my, my mind goes to hydrochloric acid, but, and you know, it, how toxic it is directly and indirectly. But like you had mentioned, hy- hydrofluoric acid works in such a different mechanism because it's such a weak acid. I believe the dissociation constant is a thousand mm-hmm. times yeah. lower than hydrochloric acid. Right, right. Um, but those toxic effects are from that pesky, fluoride ion, right, that penetrates deeply and kind of binds up everything. Absolutely. It's the worst. (laughs) Yeah. And I think this is key as we kind of go forward as a little spoiler alert, you know, what some of the most toxic effects of the fluoride ion is the reaction with calcium, like you had mentioned. And this is basically the basis for treatment as well for most of our toxicity. You'll hear calcium leave our mouths a lot. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, so then, you know, a patient gets exposed to hydrofluoric acid through the, the dermal route or they inhale it. Um, so how do they present, like, what does that toxicity look like when your patient's walking into the ER? Right. And a lot of that's going to depend on a few things. So, um, first of all, the concentration of the product that they were exposed to, uh, so if it was someone who was maybe doing, um, some kind of rust removal or glass etching, um, as a hobby at home, my brother made me a very nice Christmas present. <laughs> he had oh. to use low concentration hydrofluoric oh, acid. <laughs> did to, he call you before use, he used it? Or <laughs> No, I would have told him to lock that up, <laughs> lock up the hydrofluoric acid. So that concentration is, can really impact what you see, as well as the amount that actually contacts the patient. And then as well as the contact time. So those are three very important components that can determine how severe the toxicity is. So with the higher concentrations, you can have immediate pain and visible damage. Uh, What we probably will most likely encounter is those lower concentrations, uh, what you might call the household strength. And those patients may have some latent hours before they actually start to develop severe pain that can be delayed up to 24 hours in some cases. So usually that'll um, appear pretty benign up front, and you'll have this kind of classical pain out of proportion uh, before you start to see maybe some blanching or white discoloration as you have some of those calcium complex precipitate form formation happen. And then um, we uh, can also kind of group uh, systemically some of the other effects depending on how the patients get into it. So if it was an ingestion, you're most likely to see gastritis. Um, vomiting, abdominal pain, but usually it tends to spare the rest of the the GI tract. Um, With patients with high volume, high concentration ingestions, you can see altered mental status um, and then kind of uh, some of the sequelae of that um, as they develop that systemic toxicity. Ophthalmic, you can 
certainly see more extensive injury than most acids. So there can be pretty quick damage to the cornea, um, the conjunctival epithelium, and some of those effects can persist for some time. They can be um, maybe potentially permanent in some cases. And then pulmonary, again, depends on the concentration contact time. So uh, with some of those mass inhalational exposures we saw, um, patients came in with throat burning, shortness of breath, and you can actually see enough exposure from that route to develop some systemic effects like that hypocalcemia. So definitely kind of also keeping in mind that eye injury and lung injury um, can be a package deal. So a lot of those patients, if they're going to have one of those, um, may present with both the pulmonary and ophthalmic exposure routes. Sure. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, the thing that I kept reading about hydrofluoric acid is just the pain. And like you were saying, the pain out of proportion, I've heard it described right. as unrelenting and just a relentless pain. And oh, it just sounds like an awful thing to right. go through. <laughs> it sounds pretty bad. Yeah. Okay. And then, so, you know, if we, once we diagnose the hydrofluoric acid exposure, are there any specific labs that are helpful or is it just more of a general type of BMP EKG type vibe? You'll probably capture um, some things that you need with your your general workup. Uh, of course, if it's you know an intentional suicide attempt, then you complete that usual assessment. Specifically to hydrofluoric acid, um, unfortunately, fluoride levels don't really help you at all and are hard to get. Um, so really focusing on um, those electrolytes that we're concerned about. So we know that we can see that precipitous fall in calcium and magnesium. And also we can see that potassium efflux start to develop. So those are the things that we should be trending most closely. Um, ionized calcium would be recommended in this case um, to help guide your repletion. And then also be following your 12-lead EKG. Some of those effects that we'd expect to see, so hypocalcemia with your, um, your prolonged QT interval with your hypocalcemia, peak T waves, and hyperkalemia. Um, in some reported cases, they had a very clear... Um, visualization of those peak T waves on EKG before the, the onset of ventricular dysrhythmia. So that can definitely be a marker of severe toxicity. Um, so calcium, magnesium, potassium, your 12-lead EKG, keeping that patient on a cardiac monitor, those would be the things that I'd be honing in on. And that's a great point, you know, when we talk about the systemic side effects of like the hypocalcemia, hypomagnesemia, and then the hyperkalemia, and just kind of thinking through as clinicians and, and pharmacists, um, the fact that these things can lead to cardiac arrhythmias, right? And right, death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of think about some drug things like, you know, if we have a patient that potentially has hyperkalemia with this exposure, maybe we want to avoid certain meds like succinylcholine for intubation right, and exactly. things like that. So there's a mm -hmm. whole host of things that electrolyte disturbances eventually lead to. Right. Right. That's so important. Um, okay. So I guess finally, our favorite part is how do we treat hydrofluoric acid exposure? Yes. And um, we can just bring it back to the first step, which is going to be decon. Um, so decontamination is very important in these cases um, that depending on the extent of injury and exactly how the patient was exposed, um, you may need to remove clothing and use very copious amounts of water for your irrigation, and also just really make sure that the healthcare personnel who are taking care of these patients are protected as well. Um, as you can imagine, emesis from a patient with a hydrofluoric acid ingestion would be very harmful <laughs> to the healthcare yeah. personnel taking care of them. So we want to make sure they're protected. Um, and that point, 
Um, again, assessing airway, like you said, um, this is a scenario where you probably want to avoid succinylcholine in these severe uh, toxicities, just because you are pretty likely to see um, that potassium efflux and a higher serum potassium level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get into some of the fun stuff. And um, I'll probably need to tag team with you to make sure we don't miss any of the fun ways we can give calcium. So um, the the most common, again, coming back to that most common scenario of the dermal exposure. So some of the studies that look at how to best manage the the pain that can come alongside this this exposure shows that uh, pretty immediate decontamination or as quickly as possible as you can, if water is all you can. And then the faster you get calcium involved, the uh, more likely you are to see a reduction in that pain um, and to see improved outcomes and subjective improvement. Uh, so there's a, a whole bunch of ways we can do that. Where should we start? Let's start with the eye. Okay. So <laughs> let's, let's I like go from it. easy to complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so ophthalmic exposures, we irrigate, and that seems pretty straightforward. Um, the most important thing here is that this is maybe the one scenario Um, probably the only scenario in this management um, paradigm where we would not recommend using calcium salts. They tend to be irritating to the eye and they just don't seem to have any benefit over the non-calcium containing solutions. So normal saline, um, lactated ringers and water would be great irrigation solutions. Um, And you can start with a liter and kind of go from there. There's some suggestion that Prolonged irrigation may worsen outcome, so a reasonable amount of um, irrigation um, without using calcium salts in the eye. All right, noted. Um, How about just, I guess, just systemic um, IV calcium therapy? What is the dose there? Right, so if you're just talking repletion, which is probably what we're doing in these patients is trending that cal- those calcium levels. Um, I, if you have an institutional protocol that uses an ionized calcium guided repl- replacement, then I would uh, default to that. Um, I think the most important thing to know is that these patients may require a lot more calcium and a lot more magnesium than we're used to giving patients. Um, and impressively, that amount of magnesium calcium when we give it to patients with hydrofluoric acid systemic toxicity really doesn't result in any kind of hypercalcemia or hypermagnesemic picture, probably because of that total body depletion. And most of these patients tend to be younger and have okay kidneys and can um, excrete that calcium magnesium over time. Um, If you need to, you can also dialyze um, these patients um, in very severe poisoning. You will pull off fluoride ions through hemodialysis. Okay. Um, How about if some of it gets inhaled? Can we nebulize any type of calcium solution, anything like that? Definitely. Um, Inhalational exposures um, respond very well to nebulized calcium gluconate. Uh, Most most uh, references that I'm familiar with will recommend a 2.5%, but you can you look at this as a range. So 2.5% to 5% of nebulized calcium gluconate. And those patients had a very uh, marked subjective improvement in their symptoms. Okay. So can we tell the audience how to actually make this at bedside? Yeah. So for the 2.5% nebulized calcium gluconate solution, I'd recommend using one of those 10 ml vials of your 10% calcium gluconate. And then you would essentially use a one to four part if you're trying to achieve a 2.5% solution. Um, 
with saline for nebulization. That's probably how I'd recommend it. Do you have, do you have a different approach? No, I mean, you know, my approach has come from basically just any literature, um, blog posts, uh, you know, textbooks. And yeah, it's basically the same thing. I think I found one recipe that specifically said you can add 1.5 mils of a 10% calcium gluconate solution to 4.5 mils of sterile water or normal saline. And that gives you, like you said, a 2.5% solution. Um, Or you can Mm -hmm. take one mil of that same 10% calcium gluconate solution, dilute it with three mils of your chosen uh, fluid, uh, typically NS or sterile water. And that again gives you a 2.5% solution, which you you can just put in that neb chamber and just let it ride. Right. Yeah. This is a great opportunity to get your pharmacist involved. Do some math. Absolutely. (laughs) And as we know, uh, emergent math is a lot harder than um, (laughs) sitting at home on your kitchen table and doing math. (laughs) Absolutely. So I like to have all these numbers out on the airwaves so people can kind of jot them (laughs) down or just kind of, you know, remember them for the next time they might see this. Right. Um, What about a subcutaneous route? Subcutaneous. um, So subcutaneous injection is certainly an option. Um, I think that probably is a little bit less popular than some of the direct topical routes um, and then some other routes, including intraarterial. Um, it's not a route that I've had to recommend personally. Um, I've managed to achieve success with the others. Mm-hmm. Any um, any experience on your end with with intradermal or subcutaneous? I have, I have never given it that way either. But um, there's some great um, once again references out there that you know you would just take a five to ten percent calcium gluconate solution using a twenty seven to thirty gauge needle, um, and then just kind of surrounding the area of exposure. Um, but there's certain limits to how much you should give subcutaneously. So mm-hmm. one, one reference said half a mil per digit or one right, mil per right. centimeter squared. Um, and that you can repeat that every hour or two, but I have not seen this done. Yeah. This is probably a less typical route of administration. I'd say compared to the other ones that we've okay. got on our list. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a very typical route, uh, which is the topical route. Yes. <laughs> um, a typical topical route. <laughs> yes. So, um, so there is um, a commercially available gel uh, that I don't think most people carry, and you can certainly compound your own similar percentage gel. Um, so, what we're aiming to achieve here is two point five percent. So, there's a few ways to do that. You could take thirty five milliliters of that same ten percent calcium gluconate solution. And then add that to five ounces of something like Surgilube, KY Jelly, um, and then really can also use calcium carbonate tablets even by crushing those. So uh, seven of those 500 milligram crushed calcium gluconate tablets combined with the same amount of diluent would also help you achieve your 2.5% solution. Um, And then after you do this, you can either directly apply it or what most people, one of the popular ways to do this is to actually put it into a sterile surgical glove and then place that patient directly on the patient's hand and just let it sit. Uh, You can see pretty impressive relief with this method. And um, definitely that's how we kind of titrate our treatment is by by working off the patient's subjective reports of uh, pain improvement. Yeah. And like you said, there's just so many different ways to get your solution that you want. Um, And so I'll post a couple of these different, you know, column recipes 
onto the website and onto the Instagram page, just so people get an idea of how to make these solutions, either using calcium gluconate solution or crushing up Tums tablets, which which is actually what we would do at my site is we would crush up 20 tabs of Tums and add that to about five ounces of some type of Surgilube or KY jelly, any type of water soluble lubricant. Mm -hmm. And that will also get you to about 2.5%. Right. Yeah. Um, And then I think it's just really interesting to note that the way that we know that this is working is only just pain relief, right? So if the pain goes away, it's concentrated enough, you're doing it right, it's working. If pain doesn't go away, then you might have to go to some of these odder um, routes of administration, which I think we'll talk about just one more that's left. But I think, and I don't know if you have any experience with this or what your thoughts are on this, but um, the fact that local anesthetics should actually be avoided because they mask the pain. And like I just mentioned, you know, pain is is a measure of how effective our treatment is. Um, And it's just one of those things that might be missed. Mm -hmm. I think we, you know, jump to topical lidocaine and things like that. Um, when in this case, a good pearl is that we as a pharmacist should say, absolutely not. <laughs> right. And we should yeah. not give any local anesthetics in this situation. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's probably floating out there some some recommendations to use it. But I tend to agree with you. I think that we would be taking away our uh, ability to titrate our calcium administration. Mm-hmm. And we know it's all about calcium here. <laughs> right. Um, right. In this in this case, with these um, these exposures, especially the ones that are just limited to your hand, um, where the patients come in a significant amount of pain, and you can offer a lot of um, uh, relief to that pain by by applying calcium or administering calcium in various routes. Sure, and I guess we have time maybe to just talk about the strangest route, which I think is the intraarterial route. And once again, I've not seen this done before. But do you have any pearls or, or information on that route? Right. Yeah. So this one, I think it's pretty interesting. It's it's nice to have uh, the option here when you can't really do good local injections. Um, for example, if someone were to be considering uh, going back to your intradermal um, route um, question. So if you're you're in an area where you can't deliver a lot of volume into that into the affected tissue, this is, it provides a nice option. So a nice alternative option, we can deliver calcium directly to the affected tissue from the proximal artery. Um, and what you could use here is really, uh, they say to add 10 mLs of a 10% calcium gluconate solution to 40 mLs of dextrose, uh, which really brings you out to, um, it comes out to uh, what for some people may even be a pre-mixed IV piggyback if you ha- carry those at your institution. Those oh, one gram. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. 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 So that it really comes out to the same thing. So um, you can take one of those or compound it in your IV room. And that infusion would go intraarterially over four hours. Um, it doesn't really have any complications. I haven't seen any serious complications. Um, you may need to repeat that. Um, there are some case reports where this uh, intraarterial injection is repeated up to five times, but there haven't been any reports of clinically significant hypercalcemia, and there have been reports of uh, a lot of pain improvement. Very nice. Is there anything else you think that we might have missed or anything else that you think our listeners would find useful? Any other pearls or did we did we nail it? Did we get most I of think, it? I think we got most of it. I, I think you could probably throw a beer block method administration there as well. Um, oh, sure. that's, that'll come up in, for sure when you're, when you're uh, having these discussions that also has an effect that tends to last for several hours with no adverse um, effects. 
Um, and the biggest thing to know, um, and we kind of touched on this, is that some of these digital exposures, these hand exposures, you may see recurrent pain and you may need to reapply some of these topical products or maybe need to uh, repeat some of those injections as well um, as have good follow-up and wound care. Absolutely. Great. Well, Casey, thank you so much for your time. Um, if anybody listening had any points to add or anything that they've seen done that seemed to work well, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on the website or on the Instagram page. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next week. Yeah.